0: Check out idealwine.com for more information. That's I D E A L W I N E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. While I was out in California recently, I recorded some interviews on the go with the travel mic. And these aren't in the studio, so the conditions are a little bit different. Uh, before we get into today's interview with Tegan Pascal-Aqua of Turley Wine Cellars, and also he's a wine grower in Lodi, I just wanted to mention that the recording may sound a little bit different than the normal quality.
1: Well, how did you end up on the wine thing? Well, I graduated uh, from college from uh, Sacramento State, so kind of the, uh, the state school that's close to UC Davis that doesn't have a wine program, and I uh, my bachelor's degree is actually in public health, and I moved home aspiring to be a social worker and an educator, and a friend told me about an internship at a winery that required uh, one year of organic chemistry and one year of microbiology, which I had. So since I didn't have a job, it was the summer after I graduated, I, I took that lab job, And about two months into that job, I kind of was bitten by the wine bug, as people say. Where did that lead you? Well, that led led me to another another, uh, winery called Napa Wine Company, which at the time was kind of the custom crush place in the Napa Valley. And I was lucky enough to work with 30 of the top winemakers every day. And working in the lab, they had a lot of questions and they needed a lot of favors that you know, we could perform for them. So that led me there. And I kind of came to a point that I was finished working, doing lab work, and I wanted to work in the cellar. And a friend of mine who was one of the winemakers there, his name's Andy Smith, who makes Larkmead and Dumal. He helped me get a job at a new startup winery in New Zealand called Craigie Range.
0: And what was that experience like?
1: Uh, it was it was really fun. It was the first time I'd ever left the country. Uh, so kind of, you know, wrong side of the road driving and all that stuff. Uh, the, the really neat thing was, though, I, I got to meet people from all over the world who were, you know, pursuing the dream of, you know, winemaking. And how long were you out there? I was there about four months, three or four months.
0: And... Uh- when you got back to California, how did things progress along in terms of a job, or did you already know what you were going to be doing when you were out in New Zealand?
1: When I was in New Zealand, I, I went to the internet cafe and faxed a bunch of uh, letters. Most people, wineries still didn't have websites back then, and they had their fax numbers, so I faxed a lot of letters. and uh, Luckily, the guy that I was working for in New Zealand, who was an American named Doug Weiser, uh, he he knew the crew at Turley, and I written a letter to Turley, and they offered me a 10-week internship when I came back. So it was just, you, you now that you've
0: been there over 10 years, originally it was just a, a 10-month thing.
1: Uh, actually, 10 weeks. And, 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 and I, I haven't been there 10 years yet. July will be 10 years. So July will be 10 years, but yeah, they offered me 10 weeks of an internship. And
0: uh, so it was you and Aaron Jordan, because Aaron, Aaron was the winemaker at that time.
1: Exactly. General manager, winemaker, you know, my boss. And there was an assistant winemaker named Jamie Whetstone there. Oh, sure. Whetstone. Exactly. So uh, basically they offered me this internship and about three or four weeks in, they approached me and, you know, Aaron said, how about you go to the Southern Hemisphere again and work another Southern Hemisphere harvest and then come back to Turley to a full time job? And that, you know, I was extremely excited about that idea. And then about two weeks later, Aaron came back and said, why don't you just stay around here? And it was kind of like, oh, shucks. You know, like I kind of was looking forward to like going back to the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, But, you know, he offered me a job to stay around and actually be involved in the farming and learn, you know, the organic viticulture. And, you know, it was an opportunity I didn't feel like I could pass up. But you did end up traveling to
0: other areas of the world later in your career, uh, South, South Africa, and you were in the Rome for a bit.
1: I was. After two years at Turley, uh, you know, like many, you know, mid-20s males do, they had a relationship that had ended. And I, you know, just kind of thought, well, now's my chance. You know, like, this is my last chance. You know, the, my life's almost over. You know, I'm 25. Uh You know, I might as well, you know, this is my last chance to go work. And I, you know, through Aaron's Wines at Fela, I was really blown away with uh, Whole Cluster Syrah. And I love the Graill wines. And uh, Larry Turley, who uh, who owns Turley Wine Cellars, his wife, uh, Suzanne Chambers, uh, imports Grayo. And so they helped me get a job and I went and worked with them. And What was that experience like? I mean, what was it like
0: working with Grayo?
1: It, it was pretty amazing uh one you know he, he's just an extremely hard-working fella uh he really cares about his wines as much as any person that i've ever met and you know he makes amazing wines and it shows you know it's it, he's kind of the guy who you know couldn't you know purchase a vineyard in burgundy next to his friends that he grew up with but he bought you know A place in Crow's Hermitage and and, you know in my belief makes the best wine in Crow's Hermitage I I mean I I would say you know he he went to Crow's and he makes a Syrah that's better than you know 50% of Hermitage wines
0: did you vibe on that later and I mean jumping way ahead of our story but did you vibe on that later in just the sense of how hard it is to start up in Napa now and you do work in other parts of California where the the buy-in is a little less expensive
1: Oh, for sure. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, he, he kind of shows people that if, if you want to do something, go out and do it, you know, and y- you can, you know, control your own destiny, you know, and it's one of those things, you know, you may never be able to have your, you know, your part on the mid slope, but, uh-huh, you know, you, you can also make some pretty great wines that have a lot of character and uh, give people a lot of pleasure. And you also worked in South Africa.
0: What was that experience? How did that come about? And what was that like?
1: Uh, I, I worked for a guy there named Eben Sadi. who he has a winery in South Africa, and he also is a partner in a winery in, in the Priorot region. Uh, and he's a young guy, and he if, – if there's ever been anyone I've worked with that could possibly be clairvoyant, it, it, it's Eben. And, you know, but, but there's – there's a caveat to that. And he's, I think he's 40 now, but he's worked 40 harvested, you know, 40 vintages, you know, he he's worked two vintages a year, basically since he was 20. Oh, I get it. And you can't, you know, you can't make that up. Do you know what I mean? You think of all these old timers who are, you know, 65 and they've worked 40 vintages and they have all this experience. But when you can say that, or when you've done that, and you are only forty and you are still more energetic and active, and you know more open to experimentation, it's a pretty neat thing.
0: It was kind of like when Bo was playing basketball, or excuse me, baseball and football before he got injured, like that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, kind of like that. I just think you know, traveling, you know, in has really changed you know, winemaking. I I think, you know, being able to travel the world and, you know, the privilege of people inviting, you know, young winemakers into their cellar, uh, it's the biggest privilege in the wine business. You know, someone saying, come in, you know, we're going to feed you, clothe you. And, you know, we're we're also going to show you how we make wine and we grow grapes. And that to me is just the most special part of the wine business. And did you really feel that from Aaron? Oh, for sure. You know, Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron was one of those people who, you know, he hires people who can figure things out for themselves. And, you know, kind of, he believes give people enough rope to hang themselves. And he, you know, he allowed me to to blossom, you know, and basically just kept continuing to give me responsibility. And.
0: Originally, you were um, just overseeing vineyards there, but now you do both winemaking and vineyard work for Turley.
1: Exactly. And I I think, uh, you know, just saying that I just oversaw vineyards isn't the exact truth Uh, from kind of a, a, I've always been involved in in the winemaking, you know, but just, I, I wasn't making, you know, a lot of the key decisions, but, you know, early on when I started taking over the vineyards, Aaron, you know, I started making the picking decisions, which for the way we make wine is probably the most important thing. And yeah, so I started doing that and Aaron just kept saying, you know, he he was the type of person who knew that I had a background, you know, he knew that I knew wine, he knew that I understood viticulture, he knew that I understood, you know, wine chemistry and winemaking and he basically just kind of told me you know go off and you know make the wines better
0: but did you also you guys just vibe on a personal level too because you worked together for a super long time
1: oh for sure yeah we we definitely vibed on a personal level and you know we 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 like drinking the same wines you know you kind of have a lot of the same insights but you know looking back i think a lot of that insight for me probably came from him. You know, you don't realize it, but you know, I would say you know a lot of it came from him.
0: That totally makes sense. So, something else that you've been involved in, uh, maybe as an outgrowth of your work from Turley, is the Historical Vineyard Society, where you identify old vineyards and uh, work with uh, those growers. What? How did that experience come about?
1: It came about uh, on a winery chat board. There's a there's a wine enthusiast named Mike Dildine, and he kind of posted some questions about some old vine vineyards, and you know a thread took off, and then uh, four of us kind of got together. Uh, David Gates, who's the vice president of all vineyards for Ridge, phenomenal person. Uh, Morgan Twain Peterson, who has his own winery, Bedrock. And he also grew up in the wine industry. His father's Joel Peterson, who founded Ravenswood, and then Mike Officer, who uh, founded Carlisle. We are all kind of old vine nuts, and uh, we kind of got together. And, you know, w- we had experienced, you know, losing vineyards. Uh, Mike Officer had lost two of his best vineyards that were ripped out and planted to Dijon clone Pinot Noir. One of them's still up for sale. It was ripped out and planted, and like they don't even. You know, they can't sell the fruit. They can't sell the vineyard. Uh, And it's just a shame. You know, this was one of the the best vineyards in Sonoma Valley. Uh, And you mean like old vines? Yeah, old vines. I mean, I think the vineyard was planted in the 1890s, you know, so 110 years old, you know, very few misses, extremely well cared for, uh, you know. By misses, you
0: mean missing
1: vines? exactly m- missing vines and you know they just went in with a 8 and knocked them all over one day which if you've ever seen a pile of old vines piled up for for someone like me it's one of the the sadder things that you can experience in the wine business
0: and so you decided to start doing something about that how did that work uh, take shape and what is it that you do
1: so what we're trying to do we're, we're basically we're, we're trying to preserve these, you know, old vine vineyards uh, for a number of reasons. But what we're trying to do first is just catalog them all. And, you know, people have come out of the woodworks and said, oh, well, there's this little vineyard here, this little vineyard there that, you know, have been going to home winemakers. I mean, there's still vineyards that, you know, we work with or next to us in Contra Costa that are still being packed and shipped to Canada, like they've been for the last 80 years. And so when you talk to people,
0: are you uh, recommending certain practices in the vineyard?
1: Not with the Historic Vineyard Society. Basically, with the Historic Vineyard Society, what we want people to realize is that, you know, most people who own an old vine vineyard, it's in the ground for two reasons. One, it's because it's actually in a good spot that they had some kind of incentive not to rip it out. And two, because there is, you know, an emotional aspect Uh, to growing grapes. And it's the one link, the one tiny bit of, you know, culture we do have in the California wine industry is, you know, things that are handed down father to son, which is commonplace in Europe. But we don't have that in the Napa Valley. There, There are, you know, a handful of wineries that have that in the Napa Valley. And, you know, realizing that, You know, you take care of things because your grandfather took care of the same thing. You know, it's it's one of those emotional things. But your grandfather took care of it also because he knew that there was a reward for taking care of it.
0: And did finding those vineyards and working with them take you out of some of the more well-known areas of California?
1: Well, I would say d- 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 my, job at, my day job at Turley took me out. You know, luckily, I, I was the one who, you know, had more experience with vineyards in Contra Costa and Lodi in Amador County. And, you know, the most amazing thing that, you know, your listeners should know is that Lodi and Contra Costa, you know, we have these amazing specimens of own rooted vines. You know, it's grown in sand, which, you know, technically it's actually decomposed granite. You know, it's granite. It's all decomposed granite from the Sierra Nevadas. And, you know, we have own rooted vines. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, what we all, you know, search for, you know, the the, the Terranere, you know, you know, pre phylloxera like that's kind of what we all like want to try and see, see what wines are like before they were grafted. And in California, we actually have a huge, you know, uh, huge amount of those vineyards. They're just more or less unknown. And what is the situation like
0: in Lodi in general?
1: Well, Lodi is, I have a saying that I like to say that Lodi has the best uh, grape growers in America, and it's something I, I, I really believe, but they don't have the best wine growers. They are extremely proud of these vineyards. They have the largest collection of third, fourth, fifth, and even sixth generation farming families, grape growing families in Lodi. And the issue is that Lodi's, the, the little bit of winemaking culture they had, they lost during Prohibition. But these growers have made it through everything. I mean, they've made it through Prohibition. They made it through, you know, bulk wine after Prohibition. They made it through more bulk wine. Then they made it through White Zin. And then they made it through the conglomerates coming in and basically controlling the prices like a commodity. And through it all, these farmers have figured out to keep their vines healthy and productive. And
0: what is it that they did?
1: Uh, They understood the piece of land that they were working. You know, they they understood if there were areas that, you know, weren't productive and weren't suited for grapes, you take grapes out. You know, you plant walnuts, you plant almonds, you plant cherries. You know, you plant something else that will do well there, but you also figure out what are your best sites for grapes.
0: And so you work with the Dogtown Vineyard in Lodi, and what's that vineyard like?
1: So the Dogtown Vineyard, is, is, it's actually named for a uh, geographical area in uh, northeastern uh, Lodi. So it's in San Joaquin County. And it's actually closer to Amador County than it is to the town of Lodi. So you're basically starting up the slope of the Sierra Nevadas. And it was planted in 1944 on its own roots. And it is our we work with about 35 vineyards throughout the state. It is our lowest yielding vineyard in our portfolio, naturally lowest yielding. And
0: uh, no irrigation.
1: No irrigation. And I was actually out there with uh, a, a gentleman who, who writes one time, and he said, well, when did they take up the, the irrigation? And Or when did they stop furrow irrigating? I said, oh, it was never furrow irrigated. And he tried to read me the right act of – that this had been furrow irrigated, And I said, "How do you furrow irrigate through these swales?" You know, and if you look even on Google Earth, you can see the swales. And it, what are those? Swales are uh, basically swales are low points uh, in the vineyard, but what they actually are is vernal pools. So it, the vernal pools in the Central Valley of California actually made the central valley, you know, had the most diverse area of wildflowers. And what vernal pools are is they're, uh, they're areas that basically have a clay hard pan. And so water does not drain out of them very well. And what happens is you have different types of wildflowers that flower later on in during summer. So you kind of constantly have a flowering season. And you know unfortunately, a lot of these areas were planted uh you know basically all the all the vernal pools were just kind of ripped and planted. but in those areas of the vineyard, because there is a clay hard pan, the vines are stunted they've they've persevered, and you know they are still producing but you know the vineyard on average produces less than a ton to the acre in years like uh two thousand and eight we only uh, harvested about three quarter or one third of a ton to the acre that
0: seems really low. <laughs>
1: Well, it's, and I like to put it in, you know, to, to kind of showcase in, in, you know, European terms, it's five hectoliters per hectare. Because, I
0: mean, you hear about 40, 50 hectoliters per hectare for red wines uh, pretty often in a lot of places in Europe.
1: Oh, for sure. And, and this vineyard is, it's perfectly suited to uh, the area and the climate. It, it, it It's a very intelligent uh, vineyard. It never bites off more than it can chew. Uh, the shoots aren't stunted like you would see from nematode or phylloxera issues. They're, they actually just know how much they need to grow. The clusters are normally the size of you know a normal Pinot Noir cluster, which is very different than most infinite clusters. So
0: when you say an intelligent vineyard, what you mean is it responds well consistently to different vintage characteristics year after year.
1: It responds well and it understands what it can do. It, it has the history of responding to drought years and to heat spikes and, you know, the, the, it still can keep the vines alive. And in an area where, you, you know, you, the, the whole region gets usually right around 20 inches of rain, 18 to 20. But, I mean, we have years where we've had 8 inches of rain. And these vines, you know, you talk to a lot of people in Napa Valley and they would say, if you don't irrigate, you're going to kill the grapevines. And, you know, it's pretty hard to kill a grapevine, you know, without, you know, running it over with a tractor. But grapevines are a lot, uh, they're hard to kill.
0: (laughs) Do you think attributing that intelligence to the grapevine rather than trying to determine it, or control it is maybe the difference between you yourself and other people working maybe some other people working with vines in California? Uh
1: maybe. Uh you know, I I think you know, it, it goes back to the difference I think between grape growing and wine growing, you know, and kind of trying to figure out what a site wants to do. You know, it it's you know, I, I haven't had children yet, but I think, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you know, you kind of want your kids to, you know, try to figure out what they want to do. And, you know, luckily all these old vineyards have had a long enough uh, journey to figure out what they want to do. And they, you know, have figured it out very well.
0: Do you think there's a level where when you taste the fruit, you have an idea of what uh, that fruit can do well, as opposed to going in with the idea of what you want and then trying to scoop fruit like that?
1: Well, I mean, that that right there is, you know, that's the, I, I I think, you know, there are a couple different things going on there because that's kind of the philosophy part of, you know, I've had this discussion with some friends, you know, what is a ripe banana? Do you know what I mean? Some people, you know, want bananas green and some people do not. And, you know, I I think what I have come to realize is that you kind of know what kind of fruit you would like to make wine from. And of course, you walk vineyards, you walk, you walk, you walk, and you taste, and you get to know these vineyards pretty intimately. But also, just like a, a human being, when they start to look a certain way, you know, I mean, there's sometimes you walk in a vineyard and you just look at it and go, we need to pick this. You know, and it's not that the, the, the you know, grapes are raisins or anything like that, but you look at, I mean, the vineyard just tells you that it's done, you know, and with irrigation, you can just give it another, you know, shot of water and, uh, you know, we don't do that. And it's just really kind of understanding and it's like, do you want, you know, to pick grapes when they're still fresh or when they're on their way to decay? You know, and I, I think that's as much as a visual indicator as a flavor indicator as well. And do you think that
0: vineyards build their intelligence through uh, becoming older?
1: Uh, no, I think they build, they're allowed to build their intelligence by uh, the way they're treated. And I think the way they're laid out, uh, you know, old head trained vineyards, which, you know, we call them head trains. Some people call them bush vines, like in, you know, this South Australia. But they are born, you know, without crutches. You know, I, I always loved the story of, uh, you know, the, the, the big vineyard down in Santa Barbara called Bien Nacido. And the the name of that, I don't know if you know where the name came from. So it, it came because they put metal stakes in the vineyard. And some of the vineyard workers, you know, that it, it translates to, you know, well-born basically it means it's a silver spoon vineyard it was born with a silver spoon in its mouth because why are we putting metal stakes in this vineyard and i I don't know if that story is exactly true but that's what i've always heard that like this was a vineyard that got metal stakes and like trellis wires and you know that was kind of a new thing where a lot of the traditional head chain vineyards they were given a redwood stake and you know you you tied it with the vine with twine next to the stake and you know, it eventually, the Redwood steak would, you know, break off or rot away. But at that point, you didn't even need to replace the steak because the vine could support itself.
0: So back to Lodi for a second. You recently purchased a vineyard of your your own there.
1: I, I did. And, you know, I should uh, I should thank my wife, uh, Olivia, uh, because, you know, she allowed us to, to buy this vineyard. We don't own a home yet, but I, you know, I kind of convinced her— uh, how often does she remind you of that fact? Uh, it depends if it's uh, if I'm not picking up after myself in the house. Basically, anytime I'm not doing my fair share of the work, it's kind of, I may be reminded about it here and there. That card comes out. Exactly. So, no, she she loves the vineyard. I mean, it's, you know, we haven't had children yet, but I do think it's something very similar, you know, We're worried about the vineyard. We, you know, when we go and do tractor passes, we're worried. I mean, the the vineyard was planted in 1915, its own rooted. It's uh, in a cool part of Lodi and uh, the wines are just extremely, extremely pretty. I mean, prettier than I thought wines could be from Lodi. And it, you know, it's, we're the first non-family members to farm this vineyard. You know, in 98 years, you know, the woman who sold it to me, uh, her grandfather planted it Her father far- and farmed it his whole life. Her her father farmed it his whole life. Her brother was farming it his whole life till, you know, he, he died at a young age and she, you know, it was her vineyard and I had been helping someone farm a vineyard very close to this one and she had noticed how, you know, this vineyard, uh, you know, it looked happy you know and she was walking her dog by and i'd met her years before and she started kind of inquiring about what's going on over there you know we'd converted it to organics you know it just it, it's kind of what i call the public shaming you farm a vineyard so well that like everyone you know starts looking at like this vineyard and saying what's going on and she we started a conversation and i told her i would love to buy her vineyard and she was like no and we had a couple conversations and uh, it really wasn't looking like, you know, we could come to an agreement on, you know, price and terms. And, you know, we kind of left one long conversation and she said, thank you. You know, I know you love our vineyard and, uh, you know, it means a lot to me. And the next morning I got a call from her on my way to work, you know, at 7am. And she said, you know, I, when I, when I left yesterday, I knew that my, grandfather my father and my brother would want you to have the vineyard you know and that like you know it just kind of took my breath away you know i mean here it was like you know my dream coming true you know this this woman like just had this feeling that like you know her family who had you know tended this vineyard for almost 100 years would want me to have it and that was just pretty amazing
0: (laughs) and what do you call that vineyard
1: i call it uh kirchenman which is which is the family name uh that is not the last name she had been married but uh the the kirshman's came through the dakotas but they were actually uh germans from odessa russia and the eastern part of lodi has a lot of uh germans from odessa so the neighbors that are still there are the schmieds the bombacks the Schmeers, and they they were all from odessa russia and was it always called that that name That's what, you know, I mean, realistically, people didn't really name vineyards back then. You know, they kind of, they they would name them internally, but, you know, they were being sold to, you know, larger brands, you know, they were being sold to wineries in the Napa Valley.
0: (laughs) Is there a history of Lodi selling to the Napa wineries?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think if you look at what, you know, I would say is the big five, be it, uh, you know, Louis Martini, uh, Charles Krug. Beringer, Sutter Home, and even more recently, Robert Mondavi. I mean, they all, you know, are very successful wineries, but, you know, they were making millions of cases that weren't coming from Napa. They were coming from Lodi and other areas in the Central Valley. But, I mean, Lodi was a big uh, success story for those wineries, and it's kind of a bummer now that, you know, Napa Valley has put these, uh, you know, they're not allowing people. They're only allowing them to make a very small amount of wine from outside of Napa Valley, and to me, that you know, kind of stifles the what has made the Napa Valley so successful. Does that
0: almost mean you have to have a ton of money to come in because you can't really monetize by being here and then leveraging uh, grapes from
1: other areas too? Well, it, it it doesn't force anyone to do anything. It's just you know is someone going to come in and work their way up and, you know, buy, you know, a 50 acre parcel in the Napa Valley? Very unlikely, not impossible, but very unlikely. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, Napa is Napa, you know, it's, you know, for better and worse, you know, it's a brand. I mean, you and I were kind of chatting about Napa earlier and, you know, there are a lot of people who want to make a wine from Napa, you know, and I personally, you know, that's not my desire. I want to make a wine from where I grew up.
0: Which is also Napa.
1: Right. But, you know, it's because, you know, I want to make wines from, you know, back roads where I rode my bike as a child, you know, and places where, you know, my my family, you know, drove to friends' homes, you know, in the summers. Like, that's what desire, that's what I find desirable about Napa. Not the
0: prestige, but the, the reconnection
1: right i mean the prestige you know is you know it's clearly you know a double-edged sword of the wine industry i mean would we really be talking here if you know wine wasn't you know so as prestigious as it now is you know i don't think we would be sitting down here do you know what i mean i don't yeah i mean there are plenty of you know almond and peach growers you know out in different areas who you know no one really you know cares about
0: do you think uh wine growers are in some way kind of privileged in in that sense uh you know like there was a a sicilian winemaker who said that wine growers are the the rock stars of the agricultural industry
1: for now uh (laughs) you know but i think anyone who uh Anyone who kind of follows history realizes, you know, how cyclical the wine industry is and, you know, you know, when, is everyone going to wake up and just say, you know what, there are some amazing, amazing Cabernets made in Napa. Some. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's it. And these are the ones. And, you know, these other sites, yeah, you can grow Napa Cabernet and put Napa on the label and Cabernet Sauvignon, but, you know, would it be a better site for you know, some kind of white wine, you know, something that was grown here a hundred years ago. I mean, Tocolon, you know, was still the best vineyard in the Napa Valley when it grew uh, Crab's Black Burgundy, which is actually Mondus, you know, Nathaniel Crab, like who, you know, planted Tocolon, like it was still the best vineyard in the valley. Like it had the most prestige, but it, it grew Mondus, you know. So is Cabernet, you know, just something that, you know, people understand, or is it, you know, the best thing for the valley? So to get
0: uh, back to Lodi for a second, and with your new vineyard, uh, are you making wine commercially? Or?
1: I am not. I, I'm selling it uh, primarily to Turley, uh, so it's it's a really fun uh, way to look at the wine through our lens there. And then there, there's 15 acres of the old vines that were planted in 1915. Uh, there's two acres of Pinot Gris, it was planted in 1992 and that's on trellis, uh, trellis system. And there's two acres of Zinfandel planted in 1992. And Turley's taking all the young vine Zinfandel. Uh, the Pinot Gris going to Morgan Twain Peterson, uh, Abe Scherner from the Scolium Project and Matthew Rorick for, from Forlorn Hope. So all three good friends of mine. And it's just, it's again, it's a dream come true to be able to work with your friends who are making wine. And then I'm also selling some of the old vines to uh, people like uh, Carlisle Winery out of Sonoma and Morgan Twain Peterson and Bruce Nyers and his winemaker Tadeo are buying some of the fruit as well. And uh, Marcus Bokish, who's helping me farm the vineyard, who's a phenomenal grower out in Lodi, he he took a couple tons as well.
0: And what's it mean to you to have different grape varieties planted next to each other in one
1: old vine vineyard?
0: I mean, Is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? What's that that mean?
1: Well, maybe I could get a little clarity. Like, are you talking about the Pinot Gris and the Zinfandel or are you talking more about mixed varieties within an old vine vineyard?
0: Well, I mean, a lot of times I think we think like, okay, Burgundian model, like that's all Pinot Noir over there. Um, You know, one terroir, like one grape, that kind of thing. Like this is well-suited to that. Does it add something different to have... A uh, polyculture of grapes or no
1: well i think i think what what it does for those who want to see it is it allows us to see vineyards through a different lens and you know figure out what grows best here you know and kind of look at it and think wow the zinfandel does really well here you know and it has this kind of aromatic and flavor profile and structure And it kind of reminds me of this vineyard over in Russian River Valley where, you know, people also can grow great white wines, you know, depending on what you think about Russian River whites. But uh, I think that's the really fun part is kind of getting different uh, reference points for a site through different varieties. I mean, we don't have and I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Burgundian model. I mean, how long has it been when they stopped? You know, how has it only been Pinot Noir? you know in certain areas i mean it wasn't always that way i mean i i don't know the exact history maybe you do better than i but you know other you know varieties were grown there as well i mean i you know
0: yeah philippe the bold uh outlawed uh other grapes than Pinot Noir, but for hundreds of years or a long time after people didn't do that and like guys that came after him countermanded that and stuff like that so yeah you're absolutely
1: right so i mean we we you know we're still a young wine industry. Uh, We have a bit of culture that we need to preserve, which I believe is, you know, part of what the Historic Vineyard Society is trying to do. Uh, But what we really need to do is to get people uh, figuring out what their sites actually offer. You know, like I said about Lodi is that they have these amazing, you know, grape growers, but if you ask them what kind of, you know, I I make Zinfandel for my day job, but you know every hundred and two degree day, I always don't want to drink you know Zinfandel. You know I, I and I and I don't you know we drink it at barbecues and I, I love the wines that we make, but out in Lodi, you know, I, if there was a wine culture, I could see them you know making some more crisp you know whites, you know, not with four and a half grams of residual sugar added to them. And
0: so you mean a wine culture like if people who are growing. Grapes actually made a point of regularly drinking wine.
1: Exactly. You know, and, you know, that's the biggest disconnect is that, you know, you have these people who, you know, they have so much love and pride of their property that if anyone in California should want to adopt the philosophy of place over process, and that's in the whole wine production, that what you want to showcase is the place, not the process of making wine. Lodi has all this pride, but then when it comes to the production, they allow the process to take over and, you know, muddle the place.
0: And do you think that that prismatic view that you get of the different grape varieties has given you an idea of the potential of things uh, not yet exploited that is maybe counter to what is in a lot of areas?
1: Well, yes, but I also think, you know, I I think that has to do with, you know, being a wine geek as well and drink drinking wines from certain areas. And, you know, we all have those kind of, you know, aha moments when you drink a wine and, you know, even if you're blind tasting, you're like, I've had this wine. It was like six. And then you start going through your, you know, your uh, Rolodex in your head of all the wines you've had and you're like, what was this? But you know, there's a moment that you know that you've had that. I think sometimes you 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 try wines, even wines that you don't like, you know, they're not your style, but there's something that you're like, that really reminds me of, you know, this, you know, wine from, you know, the Northern Rhone. you know, and there's just something in that wine that reminds you and you're like, hmm, maybe, you know, Syrah would be okay here. And people that don't have that place of reference you know how can they figure that out and you talked about not muddling the place with the process
0: how how do you stand out of the way of the place when you're engaged in the process
1: well i i think what you do is that you you know you don't you don't manipulate the wines from a standpoint of things like you know oak dust. You don't uh, use, you know, you don't add residual sugar back to the wines. Uh, You know, and if people wanted to make, you know, naturally sweet wines, I'm almost okay with that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's a lot of history in the south of France and in Spain with people kind of making naturally sweet or fortified wines. But I mean, these are wines that are meeting, you know, I hate to use this term, but a lot of them are kind of being dumbed down for the American palate. And do you think
0: that that would happen less if the people who are involved in making them drink more wine or involved in
1: growing them? I think so. I think so. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, they just need to everyone needs to drink more wine, right. (laughs) You know, and I think, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, we all read a lot about wine regions and we all, you know, travel and, you know, read, you know, clips about certain producers that we all love, but nothing can replace actually like drinking the wine and experiencing the wine. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to figure out a little puzzle all the time when you drink a wine and you delve into it and you go, how did this guy pull this off? you know, and, you know, having some wines from, you know, some young producers from the south of France who are making these beautiful wines out of, you know, what was considered, you know, Carignan Planck, you know, for the last 50, 100 years. And now they're making these beautiful, beautiful wines. And you're kind of like, how do they do that? You know, and, and I, I really start to think that comes from, you know, that learned knowledge of, You know, you could ask them and they're like, what do you mean? How do I do that? That's just, I'm just making wine, you know, but they've worked in the Beaujolais or they've worked, you know, in Germany and they, they, they've watched and learned. And then when they go to apply it to where they can afford to make wine, it, it, there's a translation that takes place, even though if it's a, uh, if it, it's not conscious. So let's swing back to Turley a little bit. Uh, you know, you work
0: with, uh, for Larry Turley, and what's he like?
1: Uh, Larry, Larry is you know he's a, a six foot five Southerner who I think has always done things his own way, and I think that's why he's always been successful. He's you know believed in himself, and you know even through you know interesting times in the wine business, he just said, "Well, this is what I want to do." You know, and it wasn't someone telling him, oh, this is what you should do. He's just, you know, he kind of is the, you know, the just do it mentality. And originally
0: he was a partner uh, in Frog's Leap.
1: He was, you know, so they they planted a a little vineyard out in front of the winery in Larry's house and they started farming it organically because Larry had, you know, four small kids who were always playing out in the front yard. And uh, then he got involved
0: with, uh, with, Turley, his own, his own winery, which when I was a soulmate, a lot of people used to associate with, with Helen Turley, who she was involved a little bit at the beginning, but it was really Larry. Um, and how did it kind of build from there? What, what happened?
1: Well, you know, I mean, Aaron was one of Helen's uh, assistants and, you know, just kind of met Larry and was helping to make the wine there, and then, you know, he took over the winemaking and, you know, Aaron's such a uh you know, go getter. You know, they just kind of it's you know, and that's the fascinating thing about old vines is, you know, you're you love, you know, you're making a couple wines from these old vine vineyards and then you find out that, you know, oh, there's an old vine, you know, vineyards down in Contra Costa, let's go check those out. And kind of again, the confidence the two of them have would be like, well, I know if we just farm this a little better and, you know, applied our winemaking to it, we could make great wine. Because uh,
0: even during the period where Napa was a huge uh, name in terms of wine sales in America, you guys were bringing in things from areas that people weren't necessarily associating with, uh, you know, well-reviewed wines from California, um, like Lodi, like Cochacosta, like
1: Amador. Right. And that was just, you know, it's kind of... Uh napa's you know self-destructive nature of ripping out its you know its culture its old vines you know forces people to like search outside of napa you know so it's kind of forcing people to go well what else is out there you know it's kind of uh you know being almost turned away by you know like you know unrequited love and it like finally forces you to kind of you know look around
0: so when i was a young sommelier uh early wines were really sought after and, uh, highly, highly, uh, scored. How do you think that affected the early history or did it not?
1: Uh, th- that's a interesting question. I think that, uh, again, you know, I think Larry just knew what he wanted to do and, you know, for him, I don't think it ever mattered, you know, what people thought of them. You know, I don't think he's someone who gives a lot of mind share to kind of how people perceive him you know he, it's, he does what he wants to do well clearly he uses those bottles so that must be true <laughs> yeah you know but i mean and it's in it's that that's an interesting thing you know people are always like well why do you use this bottle for zinfandel and i'm like well what bottle should be used well a lot of people use a bordeaux bottle and i'm like a what bottle like oh it's a bordeaux bottle or wait there's some people you know who put it in a burgundy bottle and it's kind of like i look i mean i i think that turley label you know it just i think it kind of forces people to look at it and think well this isn't bordeaux and it's not burgundy you know and it and i think you know that kind of broke the mold i think there was a generation before ours who that they were fascinated or i mean obsessed with trying to emulate bordeaux and Burgundy. the claret styles well and the claret styled everything do you know what i mean and they weren't looking at it from a standpoint of well this is california it's it's not bordeaux and you know we're not in burgundy and we're in california and i mean i actually think most of our zinfandels have more in common with you know southern Rhone ones and you know but the reality is you know 50 years ago you know how many good decent southern rhone wines were in available in america i mean i wasn't around then but my guess is not very many
0: yeah even 30 years ago
1: well i would almost say you know 15 years ago and now you can walk into you know whole foods and there may be a selection of six you know southern rhone wines from you know five or six different regions and you know i think that's allowed you know I know it's allowed me and some of my friends to you just start looking at Zinfandel in different ways. And, you know, it's, it is, you know, the wines do have higher alcohol. Can you make them lower alcohol? Of course. You know, can you make, you know, it's kind of like, you know, can you make a 8% Bordeaux? Of course you can. They've been made before. Is that what you want to shoot for? I don't think so. And, you know, alcohol for me, it's never been, you know, something to worry about, you know, for me, you know, I look at you know the turley wines and i think i've told you this before but you know they have better natural acidity we don't want any of the wines they have better natural acidity than most burgundies what do you mean by that
0: i mean how high are we talking about
1: uh well i mean the the acids i would say range from on our current you know 21 zinfandels i would say that the the TAs range from about 5.8 to 7.2, 7.4, you know, and pH is, uh, you know, from 3.28, you know, up to, you know, close to four. I mean, we have wines that because of the sites they're grown, they they are higher pH, but they're also higher TA. So, you know, they may be a a 4.0 pH wine, but they still have six and a half grams of acid. And, you know, that, that is something i believe you don't want to change because that's part of the you know the fingerprint of that site on that wine so the wines were very successful although it seemed like
0: uh the prices didn't skyrocket for the turley wines as they uh did for other highly uh, scored wines at, during the late 90s early 2000s
1: well i mean part part of it you know i think is aaron and larry's commitment to you know customer loyalty uh, you know, and the way we sold wines, uh, you know, they definitely were more expensive in the secondary market, but, you know, I also think, you know, it's, everyone drinks wine, you know, we like to drink wine. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how many, you know, $150 bottles of wine, you know, someone can drink in a week. I, you know, I, I mean, it's kind of, you kind of want to make wine that, you know, your friends and family and, you know, your peers can afford to drink know but that's you know that's a you know a thing that i really respect about aaron and larry is you know keeping those prices you know reasonable you know if you came to the winery and saw you know the care that goes into farming the vineyards you know everything we farm at turley's farmed organically you know we don't use any sulfur dioxide at the crusher we don't find we don't filter you know we use 20 percent new oak we use you know quality oak barrels uh, but we only use twenty percent and we do that so we can we can use them for five years and then get rid of them. You know, and I, I love old oak, but I also think that old oak and smaller barrels actually start showing more barrel flavor, not not really oak flavor, but that it was aged in barrel where I don't feel that way about, you know, Fudra or, you know, Bote, like those large, the larger format that you can get, like those have a longer shelf life.
0: That's interesting. I never heard that before.
1: Yeah. I I think, you know, you, you look at, you know, all these, you know, people in, in the Rhone and like, you know, the traditional producers, I mean, they like, you know, it's, it's this, you know, you know, very interesting thing of people like, Wanting to make sure they can get these old, you know, like 500 liter, you know, barrels from producers sell or die. You know, that's like something that's that that's, you know, that's part of the culture. So, uh,
0: there, you know, there's another culture, which is you're working for Turley. She's always done super well in terms of scores uh, and being acclaimed but it seems like you're kind of dialed into the next generation california winemakers too uh through people you sell to and people you're good friends with um how does that divide work does larry ever come to you and be like hey stop hanging out with the the hippies or you know we got to protect their image of the high score how does it how does that uh divide end up uh, being joined
1: well, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I only work for Turley. I mean, that's the only person who pays me to work for them. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I very, you know, fortunate that I work with so many growers and growers have neighbors and, you know, always kind of sniffing around for some old vineyards. And, you know, I find, you know, Turley specializes in, you know, Zinfandel and Petite Syrah, but what we really specialize in is in old vineyards and organically farmed vineyards. So, you know, we started making a Cinso from Lodi, you know, planted. I like that one. Yeah, no, that that was, uh, it was an interesting wine. A good friend of mine uh, whose family owns uh, the Phillips Winery, which is Michael and David, they make seven Dudley's Inns. He actually started farming the vineyard for the neighbor, you know, and it was planted in 1886. It's dry farmed its own rooted you know since so and because of the way we make wines at turley where we don't add any acid the first year we were buying fruit i was like wow we we, we need to pick it you know like the acid's fine but you know it, it's it's been dropping off so picked it you know and everyone kind of made fun of me that it, you know oh it's only like you know 22 bricks you know and we made it whole cluster uh and uh you know we made this really fun wine you know we put how many vintages did you make uh we're still making it so 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 we've made 2008 2009 2010 2011 and 2012 so it's it's the fifth vintage you know and now it because what i had was really fresh
0: i'm sure i only had one of those but
1: right yeah no it's it's a fresh wine and i again like you know i I think, you know, I, you know, a good friend, Abe Scherner, like, the first year we made the wine, I made it possible that he could buy a ton, too. And when I picked it, you know, he was so disappointed. Do you know what I mean? He was like, what did you bring me? Like, you can't make wine from this, you know? And it was very interesting because I kind of had an idea of what, you know, the wine should probably be. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, it's a light red, you know, unless you want to, like, it's, you know, it's big, buried. It's 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 a light red. And so Abe tried to make, like, a big red wine out of it. And I, this is a story I think he's happy to tell. But then in part of making the big red wine, he did a, a sannier, and he, he bled a lot of the juice. And one of his interns, like, oh, let's ferment the juice. And that wine was amazing. You know, so he started actually making a rosé, which he calls uh, rhododactylus. And, you know, he, he makes you know, a good amount of that. And then he's making a red wine, uh, from it too. That's fantastic. You know, and he, you know, it's a vineyard we kind of joke a lot about because, you know, it's maybe I was just out in the vineyard more that I was like, wow, like we need to pick this. And it goes back to that kind of, you know, we need to pick like, what kind of wine do we want to make? You know, I mean, we're not going to make a 16% alcohol you so, you know? and, you know, at, at that sugar level, you know, with Zim- some of our Zinfandel vineyards, you know, it'd be 10 grams of acid, you know. So it's just such a different uh, uh, ballpark, you know. Uh, no, it's it's a really fun wine, which I think a lot of people are like, well, that's not really a Turley wine. And it's like, well, all the exact same like thought processes, like the mind share of the company as a whole, that decision is the exact same of picking any of our other vineyards. And you're also working on a Cabernet project. Uh, we are. So Larry, uh, Larry in 2009 bought some property off the neighbor that had uh, Cabernet planted in 1989, and it's uh, you know it had always it was actually organically farmed, and it's a pretty neat rootstock uh, clone selection. It's clone four and clone six. Uh, kind of one's from Mendoza. The other one's actually from the Jackson Research Station, which was up in Amador County, which is, you know, a a really neat uh, research station that was planted in the late 1800s and had just everything planted up there. Uh, But the interesting thing about them, they were planted kind of under the BV philosophy. So the rootstocks SO4, and you know those two clones don't express a lot of pyrazines so it's basically it's kind of developed to pick you know at lower sugar levels if if you get geeky and you read up about the so4 trials you know and they have like the fruit chemistry at you know 23 bricks you know the fruit chemistry doesn't go up to like 27 bricks and so rootstocks like so4 and 5c Really fell out of favor in like the mid and late 90s because like, well we can't get these grapes up to 27, 28 bricks like your neighbors are. We gotta rip them out and plant something else. But the beauty of them is that they actually, you know, they kind of have Cabernet flavors that you want at you know lower sugar levels, like 23, you know, 23 and a half, 24 bricks.
0: So the wine you're making is is actually fairly low by Napa Cab standards in alcohol.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, the first one was right at like 14.2 or something like that. And then the other ones have been 13.4 and 13.6. And, you know, it's it's not an extremely, you know, hugely tannic wine. You know, the, the most we've ever, you know, been able to farm the vineyard at is, you know, right at like three tons to the acre. Other years have been, you know, right under two. So, I mean, it's, it's not a vineyard that wants to heavily crop itself. You know, it's just kind of happy doing its own thing. And, you know, we're never going to, you know, we don't really shoot for the blockbuster Cabernets. It might sound weird coming from Turley, but, you know, we actually, you know, I have this big joke of, you know, I don't know if you know what the definition of an enologist is. So no. it, it's it's the definition. My joke is that funny, funny. Uh, Haven't even said it yet. But uh, the joke is an enologist is someone who's paid to make Cabernet not taste like Cabernet
0: do you feel like that that there's a commonality to a lot of Napa cab or cab in general from California?
1: Well, I, I I think part of, you know, what Cabernet tastes like. I mean, if Cabernet has a little pepper and a a little vegetalness, like that's part of the grape variety. Do you know what I mean? And you look at all the kind of tricks people have learned in analogy and especially California and Napa Valley and it's, you know, so focused on like making Cabernet, but then it's like, well, let's not have any of that. And it's like, well, what's that? It's like, well, that's, you know, you know, that's part of the personality, you know, it'd be like going to your significant other and be like, I like this about you, but I want to like figure out a way to get rid of that. And to me, that's, you know, it's the whole, it's the whole package you kind of sign up for so what,
0: what happened with, uh, with White Coat? What's the story with that one from Turley? Uh,
1: we still make it. Uh, we make very little of it. Uh, it first started, we were buying some fruit from uh, John Alban. Uh, and, you know, he basically started using more of his own fruit. And then he actually pulled out the, the Viognier and Roussan and planted uh, more Syrah. And now we make it, it's all estate, and we use Roussan that we planted up on the top of Hell Mountain. And then we have Grenache Blanc at our vineyard down in Paso Robles, and we blend those together.
0: Oh, I see. Okay. And did you find that you uh, kind of bonded with Aaron on the Rhone thing? Is that, was that a commonality during the time that you guys worked there?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, you know, he... uh you know, and he's still there, uh, you know, and he, yeah, I mean, he, he's a Roan nut too, you know, I mean, he, and I, I said, looking back, you know, I think part of, you know, what I believe from, you know, p- a big part of my palate is, you know, some of the wines that, you know, he made and, you know, checking out whole cluster Syrah and just looking at things in a little different way.
0: So you're 35, uh, yes. and I'm your age, you know, I'm looking at you, uh, it's kind of a, a next generation guy from a a lot of the people that I used to visit in Napa when I was younger who are older. Uh, And where do you see the road ahead for California grape growing winemaking as generations change?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, people, you know, a lot of people that I'm friends with, you know, are going to, you know, go out and, you know, not reinvent California, but, you know, see what California has to offer. So if you look at people like, you know, Matthew Rourke with Forlorn Hope and, you know, Abe Schoener from the Scolium Project, and, you know, they're making some really amazing white wines from places that were considered red wine country. You know, Matthew makes a Verdello from up in uh, Amador County. It's a fantastic wine. Abe also and Matthew share a vineyard out in uh, Northeastern Lodi, the same thing, you know. I mean, we we there, are, you know, red vineyards that are right by these that are adjacent to them that make good wine. But I mean, I think the whites are, you know, pretty amazing, and it, it's interesting, like looking at you know these warmer regions that actually you could make better white wines than red. And I still haven't figured out why, but you know, it, it's clearly there. So
0: I mean, for you, does it really come? down to if you want to make good wine it it has to start with vine material and where and how it's grown
1: uh yes and no it it you know it kind of you know it has to be i mean i got in this argument recently with someone that you know it's like you know napa valley like you know the part of you know terroir that it lacks is that you know the people you know, the people. And I'm like, well, actually, in Napa Valley, like, I actually think that it does kind of represent the people, you know, these people who, you know, the same people who are, you know, wanting the huge mansion and their name on the label and 100 point scores. Like, don't those wines kind of represent them, you know? I, and I don't want to, you know, they represent that whole mentality. Like, that is part of, like, the terroir of, you know, the valley, like, that these people, You know, the wines represent their mentality and philosophy in life, you know, even if it's they're having someone else make them and someone else farm the grapes and they come in and, you know, you know, sit in with a critic tasting and say, oh, wow, you know, I got a 100 point score. Uh, You know, so that's just an interesting part of, you know, Napa Valley does have that. I think what people don't want to admit is that that is showcased through the wines.
0: Probably they don't want to admit it because it starts to sound like passing judgment on
1: people who are
0: walking around, whether it's
1: true or not. Well, it's passing judgment, but I mean, it's just, you know, it's the fact. I mean, you have, you know, rustic, you know, French reds, and they're usually made by kind of, you know, rustic folk, you know, and that live in, but they're still making wine, you know, so when you have, you know, more polished, showy reds that are made by more, I polished, you know, showy people that kind of makes sense, right?
0: Does it turn out that they're sold to the same sorts of people?
1: I think so. You know, I think so. Uh, You know, I think that's, you know, that's one of those deals. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, in your, you know, in your kind of group of friends, like, I mean, do a lot of people buy $150 Cabernets from Napa?
0: No, I, I think not in New York, but in, when I used to work in Florida, definitely. But that was also a while ago. But I mean, uh, kind of what I'm thinking maybe is that the road ahead for Napa, and you can tell me, might actually be two roads, because one will be the uh, polished mansion guy selling to the polished mansion guy. And then the other will be the startup strap, strapping bootstrap kind of young guy selling to the equivalent of
1: that guy well right and i mean i think what what you've described as someone like steve matthiason you know who's a a farmer his family lives on a farm is making some terrific napa valley wines and people recognize it you know and you know the wines are great uh the philosophy's great you know they're they're being very well received people are kind of looking at them and saying wait these are napa valley wines like these are this red blend, this Bordeaux red blend, this is Napa. And, you know, this white blend, this is Napa. Like I, this doesn't remind me of Napa. And, you know, I'm hoping that more and more people do that, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, it goes back to how young of a, you know, wine scene we actually do have. And that's why I have no problem with anyone doing what they feel like doing if they want to make, big, you know, oaky Cabernets, a lot of people like those. And, you know, it's for us to say, oh, and, you know, sit there and laugh at them, I don't think helps anyone. You know, it's like, okay, they're going, you know, they're they're on their, you know, path to discovery or whatever, you know, you want to call it. You know, they're kind of figuring out. And there are a lot of people who will just always like those wines, and they don't want to think about wine the way, you know, we think about wine.
0: Sometimes I feel it's like cable channels where, you know, there's going to be, a producer that's uh, supported by a critic that's sold to a consumer on one channel. And then on another channel, there's going to be a different kind of critic who's supporting a different kind of producer selling to a different kind of customer. But those are going to multiply rather than just
1: be one. Let's hope so. I mean, let's hope so. You know, I mean, a lot of the bigger wineries are getting bigger. I don't know if you or, you know, your listeners saw that, you know, kind of, this is the American wine market in like a pie graph, you know, and like three wineries made up. Yeah, but that was a retail store survey of Detroit. Right, right, right. No, I know. But I mean, regardless of, you know, it's not like those facts were reversed. Do you know what I mean? Right, Right, right. So, I mean, you look at those and it's like, wow, the big wineries are actually getting bigger you know, and which means, you know, that there will probably be, you know, there are more young people who are wanting to like control their own destiny and make their own wine now, I think, than ever before, you know, and the good thing with, you know, technology and, you know, the internet is, you know, you can like market yourself with the Facebook page, you know, if you need it, like you don't have the marketing budget in your Excel spreadsheet, you know, or like in your, you know, your notebook where you have like, Oh, well, there's no marketing budget, you know, and you're allowed to do that. So, I mean, there there are a lot of opportunities for young people these days.
0: That totally makes sense. Tegan, thank you very much for being here today. Tegan Pascalakwa, thank
1: you for sharing your time. Thank you very much.
0: Appreciate it. Tegan Pascalakwa is the winemaker and viticulturist for Turley Wine Cellars. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, All pod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothat, P-O-D.com